Welcome to How AI Built This, uh, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. After a bit of a short hiatus, we're back. Thank you to Cathcart Associates for sponsoring. And let's jump in. So today on the show, we've got Tony Lucas, who I have described as an AI entrepreneur, but also um, a self-confessed product guy. And we'll get into it in more detail, but newly appointed head of CWM tools at a company called Supermetrics. Welcome to the show, Tony. Uh, thanks, Liam. It's great to great to finally be here after talking about it for months and me dropping the ball once or twice. So. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, like I said, we've had, we've had a short break. So in between you and I chatting the very first time, you've changed jobs, I've moved house and had a kid, but it's not been that long. <laughs> Just lots has happened. Um, yeah, you, you win, I think on that one I mean, <laughs> your I, achievements are bigger than mine on that one i did a couple i did it all in the same couple of weeks as well so um i'm glad this isn't a video one because the the tiredness is creeping in um <laughs> i've started this off by saying is it a fair description that you're a bit of a kind of serial entrepreneur and i mean that in a positive way um i i think that that's a phrase i've always struggled with and I feel it's a phrase that other people can give to you rather than a phrase that you should you, you should describe yourself as. Um, but yes, I think it's fair. I've started, I'm, so I'm just about in a month's time about to turn 41. I started my first startup when I just turned 17. And I've spent, what's that, 24 years? And I've spent about 20 of those years in startups. And only recently gone to the other side of the bigger world. So, well, oh, to be fair, I'm back in startup territory now, I would guess. But um, yeah. Supermetrics is, is still very much a startup uh, in the growth phase. And starting at 17 then, so I didn't actually know that. So was that just like, because we've had a few people on the show that, like you just said there, uh, calling yourself an entrepreneur or whatever, like they would shy away from that. But it's just something... It just made sense, like running your own thing, having your own ideas. That's that was just that was just you. Like, is that fair, or was it accidental? Or I wouldn't say that I was like must start a company because then you. Um, but a lot of people are like I want to start a company, and then you end up becoming a solution looking for a problem. Yeah. For me, it's always been I've. There's something that I've found that I've always been genuinely interested in. But also, quite often, it's been scratching an itch of my own, a, a problem that I've had, or it's something I've stumbled across. It's never been, oh, hang on, where can I go and make some money? Uh, what's hot right now? And funny, we'll, we'll come to one of those stories as we talk through what I did. Something ended up getting very hot and frothy in terms of the, the market around it. But it's always been something that's interested me and, and go from there. And I'd say the first one was when I was sort of 16, 17. So. And what was that? Well, it, it, it's a funny old story, actually, because what I, for years, what I said to most people was it was basically web hosting. So domain names, web hosting. Back in the days when the, the, the pitch to everyone was, well, you need a website. Why haven't you got a website? Um, and sort of in the, the late 90s, to early, half of the way through the 2000s. Um, but actually, the very first thing we did with that uh, business was hosting chatbots. For those of you people that still remember it, for something called IRC, Internet Relay Chat, which is sort of a precursor to Discord and Slack and uh, MS Teams and all these other tools, but 20 years ago. And I kind of airbrushed that bit of the history out because it didn't really make much sense to people until we got on to startup number three, which was, well, basically one way of looking at it was hosting chatbots just 20 years down the line in, in a very different circumstance. So it, in some ways, I've just repeated what I've done 
twice. <laughs> um, there's no harm in that. But do you think as part of that, because we've had this discussion on the show before as well, that like AI and machine learning is nothing new. Like there was people talking about machine learning 50, 60 years ago. There's a lot of statistical techniques that are exactly the same as they used to be. But the big thing is compute power. So if you think about your chatbots 20 years ago, when you revisited that in kind of like 2015, I assume you're talking about Converse AI, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So when you revisited that, the difference in the kind of technology, did that just make it easier or were people just more ready for it, do you think? I, I think it was a bit of both. Um, so two, two points on that. I remember, I vividly remember when I was still being at school, just starting this first one and genuinely having conversations with people because I, I was the only person I knew in my entire school who was on the internet because this was, <laughs> 19, this was 1996. Uh, I'm not saying that wasn't, but I, I was the only one that I knew of that was. And people go, so you talk to people over the internet? Well, that's weird. Why would I want to do that? And I look, I've looked back at that, that conversation. I, I honestly can't remember who it was with, but I do remember the conversation going, oh, things have changed a bit there then. So I think part of it, it was, is about being more accepting of, of some of these technologies and not just things like chatbots and automation, but also chat in general, because um, uh, that, that's changed significantly. The technology certainly has changed. I think one of the interesting things was, in some ways, a, a chatbot, depending on how wide or narrow it is, is glorified command line. It's asked to do something in a, in a natural way for the bot to try and disseminate what you actually want from a relatively unstructured phrase or, or series of phrases and then disseminate that into a structured action to take. Whereas chatbots back in 20 years ago were just structured actions. They were just command lines. It wasn't a terminal prompt, but it was still basically a command. Do this. If you type one letter wrong, the wrong thing will happen. <laughs> your, your average Joe doesn't want to deal with that when they want to interact with a tool. Um, techies don't mind that. I don't mind that. But um, your average end user doesn't want to deal with that. They, they want to be able to make mistakes and for the technology to figure it out. And that's sort of where the difference for me, was was the technology allowing that breakout of allowing your typical user to use tools like that? Yeah, no, that makes sense. I remember we had a pretty instant conversation, so we'll, we'll jump into Converse, um, Converse AI, which I think roughly kind of early twenty fifteen you, you started. Um, yeah. Essentially, a chatbot company, like you said. But I remember you said that basically the technology you built stood out from others because it wasn't just your kind of basic chatbot which like you said if you don't type in the right thing you're not going to get the right answer like you tried to build something more natural is that fair yeah so the irony of all of this is where this came about I'll just talking about a little bit of history but it kind of makes sense um we talked about uh my first business which was called excalibur and that was a web hosting business and so the, the great thing with that to begin with was hey we can sell all these websites and I and I sold that in late 2009. And then when I was looking around in sort of 2014 and thinking, well, what's next? What, what I found really, really interesting was I'd noticed more and more businesses these days. It wasn't why haven't you got a website? It was why haven't you got a Facebook page? And websites are actually becoming less relevant. And these days, if you start up a new small business, the important thing is a Facebook page. It's not actually building your own website at all. You maybe don't need one. And that led me on to, oh, hang on, it's really obvious that person-to-person -person messaging by this point in 2015 had exploded, whether it was SMS, 
Slack was starting to become a big thing. So all sorts of person-to-person messaging was happening. And I'm like, we haven't really seen a massive shift of business-to-person messaging, or I should say person-to-business messaging. That's going to explode. When that explodes, sounds obvious now, but even six years ago, that really wasn't obvious. Um, when that explodes, they're going to need technology to help it scale. There is simply no way that businesses will be able to cope with that kind of situation without technology to scale some of those interactions. Um, the problem is, is to build a basic chatbot is little more than if this, then that type scripts. If someone says hi, then then respond with hello. It's sort of basic 101. It was evolving it beyond that. And so there was two two key things that we did. One of which was we went looking at what NLP stacks were out at the time, um, going, okay, well, we need, we need to build a system that's as easy as possible for the end users to teach. We don't want them thinking about intents and utterances and entity extraction and all of these other million different terms. They don't want to learn it. They're not going to learn it. And we, we saw this very early on where um, the tolerance for teaching a bot how to recognize a phrase, customer might well say, well, I'll, here's three suggestions. Here's three plain English suggestions. That's, that's all I can be bothered giving you. Now your bot needs to recognize 400 variants of those three suggestions with a high degree of confidence. And so we went looking for what was out there and we looked at all the, the Python based stuff and all the stuff that was out there. And no discredit to any of it. And it's changed, the market is very different now. Than, than, than six years ago, but there was nothing that that w- we found that was like, okay, it needs a core corpus of understanding, but it also then needs to be extendable and trainable, both in terms of what phrases to recognize, what intents to understand it needs to trigger, but also the contextual data around that. It's just like, it doesn't exist. It does today, there's, there's a bunch of cool companies doing stuff. So we wrote it ourselves from scratch, which was an interesting experience. Um, we. I'll be honest, what we started doing was we started looking at using other tools and it's like, oh, well, if we just use that tool and then if we write our own code to to extend that tool, then we can solve the problem. And then we realized at one point, 90% of the functionality we were delivering was our own code and only 10% was this other tool. So we were like, right, well, why are we, let's just get rid of that other tool and, and finish it off doing it ourselves. So that was, that was one part of it was the NLP side, but two was, the differentiator of understanding that we human beings talk and switch contexts all the time in a conversation and we don't in we don't realize we're doing it so for example if i was to have a conversation let's say you and i were going to arrange to go out for lunch and i might say hey what kind of food do you want liam and you might you're thinking well summertime in scotland it might be Brilliant weather. It might be pouring more rain. We never know. It, we, you can never be too certain in Scotland. Um, so you might say, well, what's the weather forecast in response to my question about um, food? Now, your average bot is going to get completely thrown by that because you've just changed context. And if I if, if I was to then say, oh, it's going to be sunny. Great. Well, let's go alfresco barbecue or whatever. That's actually switching back and forward between two conversations backwards and forwards. As human beings, we just handle. We don't even think about it. But bots could get thoroughly confused by that. So we built a system that basically allowed you to to understand that you had multiple different 
sub-conversations going on and to understand, right, well, the answer they've just given doesn't make sense for this one, but does it make sense for one of the other conversations we're having and sw effectively switch back and forward? So that was what basically made it work in comparison, made a real difference in terms of understanding. What the final differentiator for us was a lot of these tools that were out there were just trying to solve that problem. And we were like, well, no, the, bit, the problem is really the workflow behind it. Okay, we've had this interaction. Liam's asked what the weather forecast is. What do I do about that? And if the answer to all of these tools was, well, you go and write some code to then call a weather API to pull the data back in, well, you haven't really made it much easier for the users to actually build their own solutions. So we built what we called a conversational workflow system on the back end. Um, so basically, the all the entire NLP piece was driving business workflows, whether that was weather or whether it was requesting a holiday or uh, filling in a safety report or whatever it might be, but being able to build those interactions. So it's sort of those three pieces together or what defined the product and yeah. differentiated it. I mean, it makes total sense. And the context switching is is really big. I mean, I've had a very recent uh, experience with a terrible chatbot where I was trying to just speak to someone and it didn't re the it didn't recognize any of the answers because it wasn't on their like three scripted ones. Um, and I tried loads of different ways of just like circumnavigating that. And I ended up, I've just gave up. Yeah, you will, because we, we have a really, really low tolerance for these things. And I'm disappointed to hear that's still happening. Um, I remember when, when Facebook launched, when, when the hype suddenly went crazy, because we got into this not knowing that any social network or any social media was going to build bots. We were a year before. We wrote the first code, I think, 15 months before Facebook announced anything. Uh, and it's funny because I spent most of that first year pitching investors and they're like, we don't understand. Why would anyone <laughs> care? And then literally three months later, they're like, we've seen seven companies this week doing the same thing. It's like, well, they're not doing the same thing because we've come at this from first principles of solving a real problem, not jumping on the hype bandwagon. Um, but when Facebook launched, I remember one of the bots, and I won't name it because I don't want to diss it, but um, let's just say it was an American company that you use to order flowers and that could be one of several and they were the launch partner and i'm like okay i'm kind of curious let's go try this bot out and the very i said and um, pressed the button it's like hi what's your address and i get why i want your address it's because of the fact that the the offerings differ depending on what city or state that you're in and their availability but it was the first question i'm like why what's your address why do you want my address what's your address it had no chain. The only chain it had was give an address and then continue from there. It had no yeah. ability to answer any other questions or, or segue in any way. And so literally I was like, well, this is rubbish. And I abandoned it. And, and unfortunately, the problem is with the, the chatbot industry as a whole is it went so hot so quickly. It went literally people were talking about how it's going to change the world, and destroy industries and create new ones. I'm like, well, that would be nice because I'd probably make a lot of money, but I think you're a little overblown. Um, uh, and it, it, it's, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Gartner hype cycle. Uh, um, no. There is a, it's, if you Google it, you'll see the diagram. It's basically a wave of um, the trough of enlightenment going up. Is it trough of enlightenment? Although something of enlightenment. Um, it's not the trough of enlightenment, something of enlightenment, the moment of enlightenment going up to the, the peak um, and then falling down into the trough of disillusionment and then eventually growing off to 
long-term value. Um, and it's just a, a, a cycle that talks about any new evolving industry. And I don't think I'd ever seen a, an industry go as fast from inception to the, the, the peak of expectation so quickly because it was literally 12 months. And some of these things take 10 or 20 years to go up that curve. And of course, then everyone's like, oh, chatbots aren't going to change the world. They're all a bit rubbish. I'm like, well, look, they actually are very useful just to solve certain problems. Not yeah. And we had customers coming and saying, we want to build a chatbot that's basically like Alexa. And I'm like, well, no, you don't. What problem are you actually trying to solve? Because um, that's what's the important thing here. It's, it, was just, it was a crazy time, but a fun time. And that's something you mentioned right at the start that I meant to pick up on. It's like you, the companies you've started have, have been from scratching an itch, solving a problem, not trying to make money so that was probably the big problem with ai and chatbots for a while where it was an obvious it was an obvious thing to get involved in four or five years ago so people were like right i'm going to build a chatbot and there's a couple of companies i know of um down south that did this and their solution for everything was a chatbot but yeah that obviously wasn't always a solution i also don't mind uh bad mouthing the people that i had an experience with because it's been the worst three months of my life dealing with open reach so if anyone has to deal with the open reach chatbot i feel sorry for you um and run away well and and th- this is one of the headaches because i still occasionally give people advice on chatbots which is the problem is they've now become i think we are still in this trough because they're now become seen as ways for companies to avoid having to actually deal with customers and leave yeah. you in what's basically a text version of an IVR phone tree. Cause they're actually, they're not that different. One's text and one's press this and press two for this and then hope you, ne- and listen to a recorded message and hope you never actually get through it through a human as far as the company's concerned, cause it saves them money. Yeah. Yeah. They're frustrating because they're, some of them are, I'm sure out there are great. I, I, I can't say I'm particularly, up to date these days on on the state of the art but i'm sure that there, there is some pretty cool things going on well i think the main thing is this is the last we'll go on this because this is just me going down on a tangent but I, I, quite often i'll try and solve like issues with my wi-fi or whatever banking like quite often i'll try and solve that relatively quickly while i'm doing something else so if i can do it quickly on my computer or on my phone and it's and it's relatively simple interaction, relatively simple fix, and then you go on with your day. Like I don't really want to be on the phone to someone for half an hour. Well, so like it, we, you can see why it would work. We joke. I've often joked about this. The, the greatest value creation that, to me, that Uber ever created was not having to try and find a random taxi number and hope that they'd actually turn up and be. Especially when you're in a different city. The greatest value creation that Just Eat ever created was, oh, which have, uh, removing the fight for who was going to ring the takeaway to try and get the order understood <laughs> and because of all the noise in the background and everything else. Yeah. And uh, ho- hoping they were going to get it correct. And actually, the, so it, it was removing that friction. And so... People want simplicity, right? So Yeah, that... they, they, want, they want simplicity. And one of the most amazing things that I haven't really seen people master yet it's the ability to use asynchronous communication properly to benefit from chatbots. Cause I don't know about you, but if I start a conversation about something, like I'll, I'll probably get distracted and then want to wander off and then 10 minutes later come back again and carry it on. That's not particularly fair on a human being. Uh, you certainly couldn't do it on the phone. You're completely synchronous on the phone. Yeah. And you have no choice but to give it your full attention. 
chatbots can be completely asynchronous because they're sitting there and waiting however long that you have to wait for. And so you, you have the great advantages of, of being able to do that. And I feel that's a missed opportunity for some. Yeah. In that way. There's probably loads more we could go through on Converse, but let's jump a little bit further ahead. So yeah, kind of early 2015, ahead of the game with Facebook, you did some pretty cool things with pretty cool customers. And then 2017, you ended up being acquired by Smartsheet, which um, is pretty incredible, actually. And we'll, we'll go through that story. Um, but I, can, I think I remember this rightly, but it wasn't really like an intentional acquisition, was it? Like you went to Smartsheet as a potential customer of Converse. Is that right? Yeah, so basically when we were hitting this sort of trough of chatbots are overblown and by that point we linked a partnership with google and one with facebook and we we were the only company in the world this random bunch of people from scotland were the only company <laughs> in the world to have partnerships with with both of, of those two and these these were true and we were engaged we were featured in google's portal we were working with facebook at events we were being featured and profiled by them at all their big events so f8 facebook were featuring us google it wasn't IO. I don't think it was called them. Whatever Google's one, we were we were doing real things, not just partnerships with a lowercase p, as startups like to occasionally do. <laughs> um, but yeah, the money wasn't really coming in. We were generating some revenue, but um, our investors were very supportive. Um, but they were still like, "Yeah, Tony, you need to you need to be achieving more before we're going to hand you over some more money." And I'm like, "Fair enough." I don't think it was an incorrect place to. to to state that and so what we went to do is look well we've got these partnerships we've clearly proved we can make a big difference with these tools let's go and find some companies where we can basically say we can help you get in and solve a real problem we weren't we weren't chasing a hype bang wagon but let's solve you a real problem that we you can use our technology using chatbots um to help move things faster and i went out there and talked to lots and lots of different companies most of which i probably can't name because i signed them the age with a more more ideas than i can count but look all sorts of interesting companies across lots of different spectrums smartsheet was one of these companies i came across but back then even this was only sort of early 2017 i had absolutely no idea who they were never heard of them i thought well this is interesting because one of the gaps we'd identified in our product was quite often people wanted a way to be able to have the bot understand data and be able to read data from something, but also for the bot to be able to store data after conversations have happened and for that to be super easily readable by a non-technical end user. So you need some kind of web-based interface that's got tables and data in it. And I'm like, okay, well, I stumbled across Smartsheet. Oh, this is interesting. Maybe there's a win-win here. So I signed up to Smartsheet just to try it out, play with the API. And a week later, a uh, lovely lady called Claire, who if she ever listens to this, um, hi Claire, um, <laughs> signed up, uh, who was the, I think, I think her title was Corporate Development Director, signed up to look at Converse. And I'm like, well, that's interesting, because we used to get a feed of everyone in Slack, everyone that signed up, and so I spotted it. And I emailed her and it started a conversation off. Um, and because I'm sitting there busy trying to pitch basically, right, give us this, give us $50,000 to go and help you. So we'll build this thing far, way faster for you than you can build in your own tool teams because of the tools we've got. And we, I was having this conversation with half a dozen other companies. And it basically led to 
we, we met a couple of times in person and Claire turned around to me and said, well, look, can you build a demo? Just build a sort of prototype so I can show my wider team uh, and the C level of, of Smartsheet what, um, what you're about. And I was so focused on getting this demo built, I didn't really look at the invite um, for it um, until like an hour before the meeting. And Claire had dropped the acquisition word, but I was like, no, 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 really not interested in that. And I really wasn't. I, was, I wasn't stupid, but I, that wasn't my primary approach. Um, and an hour before the meeting, I finally got the demo finished. Did you not stay up all night as well? Not quite all night, but I let's just say I wasn't very well prepared that morning. No, <laughs> um, it was an intense day. And I go and finally look at the invite. And I suddenly noticed like the CEO and vice presidents or senior vice presidents and a whole sort, a whole barrel of people are on this call. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. And we did the call. It went very well. The demo wasn't the greatest, but it was some pretty cool stuff. They liked it. Claire rang me back an hour later and said, we want to buy the company. And I'm like, well, okay, I'll listen, I guess. As you can probably tell from my voice, I was slightly more interested in that at this point because funding conversations with investors weren't going well. Um, the I, 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 re I remain huge fans of the people that did invest in us. And in fact, I have now become a limited partner in their newest fund um, because I, I, I think they were, they were brilliant for us, but it was a tricky time to be in that market. And so they, they made an offer. Um, I turned it down once or twice and uh, we, ne we negotiated um, and unbelievably at that point the only person I'd still met from the company was Claire and I, I always remember I was in I was down in Los Angeles I happened to be down in Los Angeles at the time visiting one of our more high, pro high profile customers for Converse which was I think I can mention this because they've, they've mentioned it publicly which was uh, NBC Universal and uh, we did some very cool stuff with them so we, we agreed terms and Claire said, well, can you fly up to Seattle? Um, I'm like, oh, I'm on the West Coast anyway, no biggie. So I, this was on the Monday. I flew up to Seattle on the Tuesday. I spent Wednesday and Thursday in back-to-back -back meetings to the point that poor Claire had to bring me food that I ate as I ran from one meeting to the next in the Smart Sheet HQ. She really did. Like, I always remember me walking out of an office and I was shoving an apple in my hand and that was the only food I ate that morning. And it was thanks to her. This is where it got really crazy because, so that was Wednesday and Thursday. I flew home on the Friday and I got home on the Saturday. Um, the Smartsheet team, the acquisition team, which was a bunch of high level execs um, across the board, they landed on the Monday morning. They literally f followed me back over the Atlantic, landed on the Monday morning into Edinburgh. Um, by which point I hadn't even seen my team since I'd got back from the trip. They knew what, bits of what was going on, but I'm like, right. And they're like, we're, we're at our hotel. I'm like, no, you need to wait an hour because I need to at least talk to my team before you come charging. <laughs> I, I always remember it's hilarious because we were, we were based in Cobase um, and we, we were in, a, we were in the, the biggest room we could afford, which wasn't very big. And I affectionately referred to as a cupboard. Um, and... In comes in this, this group of these people from this billion dollar business, now basically nearly a $10 billion business today. 
into this tiny, and we're all squeezed in, there's like, at this point, 13 of us or something squeezed into a tiny room that really shouldn't comfortably seat more than about eight. <laughs> um, um, but it all went very well. And we, they were here for that week. And I think we, I forget exactly when that was now, but I think it was less than 70 days later the acquisition closed. Uh, it was pretty rapid considering it was their first acquisition as a company and it was in an entirely different country, different continent to they'd, they'd operated before. And so both sides, we had an American lawyer and a British lawyer. They had an American lawyer and a British lawyer. And it was, it was funny because people often think selling a company is some big momentous event. You all shake hands and then the champagne corks go bursting off. And I've sold two now. That hasn't happened either time. They've been completely underwhelming. Because something always happens to pull the moment out. And in our case, we got all the docs done. Every single document was agreed. It just needed signatures. But it was the Friday before, it was Friday the 23rd of December or something. At like 4 p.m. in the afternoon, we got it all done. And so like, well, there's no time left to sign it now before Christmas. And so um, we sat there over Christmas for like four days, nothing happening. And I'm like, right, something terrible could happen in the world. And they, they, they suddenly changed their mind. Because uh, there's literally nothing to discuss. So we sat there for four days and then went into our solicitor's office, signed the docs. Um, and you can imagine an entire table that would probably seat 15 people and it was covered in documents that needed signed. So, of course, we're in there first thing in the morning and by 11 o'clock all the documents are signed. Well, they're on the West Coast. So we sat there for the next seven hours or something, or feels like that. I'm sure it wasn't as long. Waiting on them waking up to go, okay. And so we just, I always remember this because we just got a phone call go, going, it's done. And that was it. And we're like, best we better go to the pub then. <laughs> it sounds like about like when you buy a house that you build it all up in your head and the lawyer just sends you a form being like, that's, that's it, done. Like, because they don't, they don't care. Yeah, no, well, well this was it. They're, and both times now because... The first time I sold a company, there was a hiccup with a certain bank who didn't do me any favors. Um, but literally, we, we were at a point where we had all, all the lawyers and everyone in the same room hashing out the final terms of the deal. And there was one the sticking point, which was the bank had to agree where, because we had an overdraft in the first company. The, the way that these things work is when you sell a company, you tend to sell it clean. So you, you've removed the debt. So you have this sort of hand swappy thing where you're like, right, well, if you agree to sign this and I agree to give you the money to clear the overdraft, but we have to execute them simultaneously because neither side will trust the other. This is the bank and the acquirer. Yeah. Um, and the bank was like, oh, yeah, so like 4 p.m. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I'm going home for the day now. I'll look at that tomorrow. And I'm like, not cool, not cool at all. Um, I said that everything, again, everything was signed, but we were stuck. And so I'm sitting, I flew back up the next morning because this all got done in London. I flew back up to Edinburgh. I'm sitting in the office and I just get a phone call of, yeah, it's it's done. Or technically what was said is it's gone unconditional, which means no back, same as buying a house. There's no backing out now. Yeah. so yeah, these scenes tend to be anticlimactic. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's interesting actually. It's, we've not heard that side of it. Um, one of the things I noted here as well, and it's not even really much of a discussion point, but it's just some people when they f- kind of start a company, their whole aim is, and I actually met, I've met a few of these people, their whole aim is like, 
big US company is going to buy buy us out. Like that's that's my ticket out of here type of thing. Um, I actually worked with somebody in Melbourne who their whole aim was we're going to be the very best kind of small version of Accenture or like Tata, like the big kind of consultancies. Um, and they'll just buy us because we're going to be really good at it. And that was their sole aim running this company, which is, I mean, hey, each to their own. Um, but similar to your whole scratching a net, solving a problem, you kind of just went down this route of building something that was really good and really useful. And even just the way you approached like, working with Smartsheet like it was that was a potential client for you and you just impressed them rather than going out for an acquisition because I feel like obviously it does work but going into the conversation with the outcome of an acquisition is probably not going to go very well in a lot of cases. Wait, wait, and I've been there and experienced and and done that. My first company nearly got sold three times I think and every time we I got a little bit too focused on the acquisition yeah two or three times and it, and it did it did sell eventually but um a number of years later and for a lot more money than the first time around but uh the first time but it was you have to keep trying to build value and yeah. the focus always has to be on that and as long as you're doing that because one of the key things for me is selling to smart sheet was this is not an aqua hire yes you're buying the product and you're buying the talent and you're buying the possibility of growing into europe there's there's multiple reasons to be doing this but i made it very clear on my terms that obviously once the deal's done they can do what they like and I'm, there's not much i can do about it but i made it very clear that my expectation at least was the product survived and grew yeah and although it's changed name and it's changed focus a little bit what was Converse is uh, is now a bridge by Smartsheet, and I coincidentally am wearing a T-shirt. Uh, the bridge it exists today and is solving some very real problems for some very big companies, um, including uh, mainly focused on on its workflow automation capabilities, including solving some huge problems last year for a pharmaceutical company um, that. Um, and it ended up help it being helping used to track millions and millions of COVID tests. Um, the, the glue behind what was Converse has ended up being the glue to, to connect the, all the technologies together to track and it should not just track the test, but ensure that all of the testing sites got the stocks that they needed to, um, to do that, which is pretty, pretty damn awesome. And it, it continues cool. today. There's a great team in Edinburgh now continuing to, to build on bridge um and and do amazing things with it so that's awesome and it's a good time to jump into what's next so i'll come back to um one more question i had on smartsheet i think i can tie it in nicely to another one um but yeah you kind of recently uh or very recently actually started a new role um and you mentioned them before at supermetrics who are a um a scandinavian startup right so you kind of spoke to them a little bit but you're officially employee number one in the uk yes um, so not for long hopefully what do supermetrics do and what uh are you doing for them it's, it's this classic case really it's hilarious the sort of classic understated scandinavian company killing it that the rest of the world doesn't recognize because they're they're not they're not necessarily shouting about it they're just focused on delivering value because yeah. um, again, I I didn't I I'd never heard of Supermetrics until last December. We we ended up getting introduced. I wasn't looking to leave Smartsheet, but we we ended up getting introduced. And the more I dug into it, I'm like, this is a really cool company doing amazing things. Over 
10% of all online advertising spend, because um, everyone is tracked using Supermetrics. 50, over $50 billion worth of spend is tracked on a daily, weekly, monthly basis by a company that most people have probably never heard of. And basically what Supermetrics does is makes it really easy streamlines the ability to get all of these data from all of these, whether it's Google ads, Facebook ads, Snapchat, TikTok, or whatever the latest cool thing is, um, and makes it really easy to get that data to where the marketing people, the analysts, the data engineers need to get it to, to be able to actually then use it, whether that's something as simple as getting into Google Sheets or Google Data Studio or BigQuery or um, various other data warehousing technologies, basically connecting A to B. And you go, well, surely that's not that hard a problem. Well, when you've got dozens and dozens of different data sources and they're all changing and they're all growing and they're all scaling, and you want to then um, split and filter and transform that data in lots of different ways. Yeah, it's a pretty hard problem to solve. And Supermetrics makes it really, really easy for, for people to do that. And it got me really interested because I've always been a big data guy. Um, data flowing between systems and being transformed, all these things fascinates me. I'm not sure why. I'm a little strange. Um, all Everyone who loves data says that, though. They all think they're strange. So not good, <laughs> good, good. I'm not, I'm not on my own now. And when I, when I came across Supermetrics, I'm just like, okay, this is just perfect for me. And basically what my role here is having spent three and a half years at Smartsheet, which is what we call a collaborative work management platform. It's a tool that enables you to work with multiple people, whether inside your company or across multiple companies together online and, and, and do some amazing things. And Supermetrics asked me to come on board to basically figure out um, what, Supermetrics should do in terms of helping integrate and 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 work with those platforms um, from scratch. So there's no code, there's no team, there's no there's no engineers. There's literally there's no mark go to market plan. There's no pricing. There's nothing in in the space. Come and figure it out. Um, right back like, at your sweet spot of uh, this is a startup. This is the problem. What the hell do we do next? Yeah, we we know there's an opportunity there. There's just a whole bunch of things to get figured out. So I'm like, this is simply too... And this is a company doing tens of millions of euros in revenue, growing like a weed, and profitable. Yeah, they've and been hit. profitable from like the start, right? Like yeah. pretty much. Yeah, and and have raised tens of millions in funding. Not that they really needed it because they've been profitable pretty much the entire time. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, you don't turn an opportunity like that down. Yeah, no, it's so, fair enough. And I think we get back to what we said about the chatbots like uh, 10, 15 minutes ago, supermetrics are solving a problem with simplicity. Like you, like you said, like, oh, that can't be that hard to figure out. But when you go down into the kind of nuts and bolts of it, it's just, it's quite a lot of faff. It's quite a lot of complicated stuff. You'd probably have to have a huge team internally to fix all of the stuff, or you could get supermetrics to do it. And and that's basically the idea. Ironically enough, it comes back to what we're saying about friction again. What what was the greatest thing that Uber and Just Eat did? Remove friction. Yeah. And that that that's it's actually the same thing. The could any of our customers go and build this stuff themselves? Probably, but it's really not a good idea. Could you go and build your own car? Probably, but there's only a few crazy people out there that are likely to actually go and do that. It's also um, just knowing what your sweet spot is. Like that's when yeah. it's actually similar for us. We've got clients who ask us, like, "Oh, we want to hire one data scientist to figure out all of our problems." And yeah. what I've learned over the last seven or eight years doing it is like, "What? What's the problem?" And 
do you need something else first like someone to come in and do a bit of an audit for you do you need an interim person just to sort you something for a few months do you need to get a consultancy in like it's not always if your company specializes in x do you need a data scientist in-house um and it's it's a similar kind of problem like yes your supermetrics clients could hire a team of data engineers and a team of other people but why would they no and this is it and the end of the day, the more we can do I, over and above that, but the more we can do to make it easy. Like one of the things that was that's really cool at Supermetrics and similar similar theory in uh, previous roles is empowering the non-technical people. And whether you want to call that the whole no-code, low-code, or whether you, whatever you want to call it, um, it's allowing these marketing people and the analysts and the engineers who are data people, but they're not coders. Yeah, to be able to actually access this data and pivot it and transform it and look at it in 16 different ways to see what they can discover without having to have an entire uh, army of engineers or, or more techie people out there to to be able to actually help them do it. Which ironically leaves me in a position where I need to hire lots more techie <laughs> people. Uh, mainly, I'll, I'll get the pitch in here, main, mainly with a focus on Node.js engineers right now, but open to talking to anyone that's interested in, in a company like Supermetrics because we may well be hiring for all sorts of roles in Scotland. And just I mean, to, add, to add to Tony's pitch, the Finnish HQ has a sauna, so I'm sure Tony will fight tooth and nail to get an Edinburgh-based sauna. <laughs> Who knows? Um, let's just say it, it, if for anyone that wants to see how well Supermetrics looks after their employees, just go and go to Google Images and search for Supermetrics Office. It's the first thing I did when we spoke a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, um, I, I haven't been yet. I cannot wait to go, COVID I, allowing. It looks amazing. I suppose the equivalent of a sauna in your office in Finland, because we've got a couple of Finns in the team, and like sauna is like a, it's part of their life. Like mm. um, like they have them in their houses. Like it's, it's not, that, that's not something out of this world. The Scottish equivalent for you is if you just built a small pub in the office. <laughs> that... A small pub or a, or a chippy, probably. <laughs> An adjoining chippy. So after a few too many, <laughs> we can just get the bus with chips in hand. Um, yeah. You know, so you're, I mean, that was one of the things I was going to mention. So at Smartsheet, you found yourself, well, you had a team already because Converse were there, but you had a suddenly a very rapidly expanding team. And like you just mentioned, you've now joined Supermetrics, employee number one in the UK, um, and the plan is to build a, a pretty big team. Is that something that you just really do you enjoy that part of the job like is is building a team and is hiring people and giving people an opportunity is that like a big buzz or or is that something that comes with the territory no it's a huge part and i genuinely enjoy it because my my role at at smartsheet was not just as a product lead but was the site lead for for um uh for edinburgh as a whole so i we and we grew from six people to 70 in sort of two and a half years or something and that's huge in edinburgh like if people are listening or not in edinburgh tech like there's not too many companies that in that length of time would have that amount of growth of of good people as well yeah and good people and lots of good people there and i i hope to work with some of them again at some point when 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 my restrictions that allow me to uh to try and poach them mean i can i'm kidding guys uh eventually uh, i've actually been really lucky in my career that i've had people that i work with on and off and we've gone off to different places for a few years and then we've been lucky enough to join back together again yeah and i've done that a few times now and it's an amazing thing and i certainly hope to work with some of them i don't know if it's this year or five years time but i certainly hope to work with a lot of them again it's a nice place to be though no no it is and i I don't take it for granted but 
yeah, trying to grow the teams and grow the culture is is something I genuinely enjoy. It's frustrating at times, but it's it's good fun. <laughs> I think we did a really good job. I say we, definitely not me. It was a, te- a big team effort as we grew from six to seventy people. And I'm looking forward to doing that again with Supermetrics. I'm hoping as we get more established, we start hiring for across the board, not just for my team, which is my current focus, but also for other teams as well. Yeah, is the plan to almost in a similar fashion be like you will be like site lead for Edinburgh. And if the Edinburgh team, if there's value in the Edinburgh team having a product manager or some marketing people, like you would be able to kind of build that team in Edinburgh. Uh, we're still working it out, but I would certainly hope that that would be the case. Um, the There is definitely the potential there. We, You know and I know that there is the people in Edinburgh to be able to do it. And not just yeah. Edinburgh. We're, we are, we're pretty flexible from the point of view of we're going to have an office in Edinburgh, but that's very much a here's a space for us to meet up. Um, yeah. But we we are very much going to be flexible on where people come from. It's It's... And not, the world's changed, right? Like the world, the world the has changed. But that that was, to be honest, even before the world changed, we were. I've, I've always had a pretty relaxed attitude. I remember one point in Converse, we had someone in the space of six months and a team of six, we had me in Florida, uh, someone else in Sri Lanka, um, uh, but someone, else, someone else again in, in spending two months in Antigua and just all carried on working. Yeah. Um, so There's certain jobs that you can just do it, like... There's certain jobs where if there's less, if there's not as much interaction with customers, if there's not a time zone issue, like you can just do it. So hopefully that has been a big thing with COVID for a lot of companies. But yeah, I mean, you were you were doing it already. Uh, it, it has. I just want just to reaffirm because we talked a lot of the joking about having a great office. We will have a great office, but it will be an office where equally it's important to 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 have a great environment wherever people will be working from for us. Um, so yes, I'd like to recruit in Scotland, but if the right person turned up in Birmingham or Manchester or somewhere, then we wouldn't say no either. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think the way offices will work going forward will be collaboration. People will go because they want to be there like, and they will enjoy it more yes. um, than they probably did before. Yeah. Um, and you've done it a couple of times now, or like a decent few times now in terms of building teams. But is there anything that if you were speaking to an entrepreneur starter now, if you were speaking to a, a kind of technical person who was looking to grow a team, is there anything that you found that has worked really well, whether that's like trust your gut or follow a process or um, what, whatever it might be? Um, I think it's probably fair to say I've learned lots of things that don't work well. Um, <laughs> and and my, my ethos is more focused on, well, don't do any of these things and you'll probably be all right. Um, but in general, tr- trusting your gut is a good thing, but whether it's about, about people or ideas or whatever. Um, but also it is very much about having conviction. C- coming back to this point about building a startup to, to scratch an itch, Startups suck generally, um, and you will have far more bad days than good ones, but the good days always outweigh the bad ones massively. To get you through the bad days, you really need to be interested in what you're doing and really have a real passion for it, because otherwise you simply won't get through them. So in terms of starting something from scratch, that's what I would say. Um, and also just treat people with treat people with kindness, treat people with care. Um, I've made lots of mistakes in my career. You've probably find some people that I hired 20 years ago who think I was the worst boss ever. And I maybe was at that point. Um, treat them with kindness and, and in a way to inspire loyalty from them. And hopefully you will. 
I think yeah, I think it, the biggest compliment that I well I get in the job that I do, and it'll be very similar to you hiring your teams, is when people come back mm-hmm. and like they message you saying like, "Oh, hey Tony, we worked together five six years ago. Like I saw you were posting job at Supermetrics. Like, can we have a chat about it?" And the same when we found someone a job or we had a client, and they'll say, "Oh, listen, Tony recommended I get in touch with you." Like it's just that part of being nice and like yeah. treating people treating people properly but like you said you're gonna make mistakes um well and also you, I, was, I was saying with that which is don't sweat the mistakes too much which yeah. i i wish that i actually did live by that rule but i still do sweat the mistakes too much but uh in general you're gonna make them um i've always said i don't mind people making mistakes even really bad mistakes and and any any of my tech you've former colleagues laughing at this will, will know some of the mistakes I'm referring to that have been very, very bad. Um, <laughs> but um, I've always said I don't mind people making mistakes once. Just don't make the same mistake twice. That 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 bugs me. Learn from your mistakes, but mistakes yeah. are good. If you don't make mistakes, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. Um, and to finish off then, where... Uh... Can people find out a bit more about Supermetrics? And is like is LinkedIn, for example, a good place to ping you if they were wanting to find out more? Uh, LinkedIn's great. Or plain old email me if you want as well. Uh, just tony.lucas at supermetrics.com. Um, and in terms of finding out the product, just www.supermetrics.com is the main website. Come and have a look at play, see what we do. Um, there's a careers page on there as well that, that has all the different roles and has lots of the fun pictures of what the office is like. And they are truly such an incredibly nice bunch of people. Um, and I, I honestly, honestly mean that they've, I've not been able to meet with any of them yet, obviously physically still not met a single person. Um, hopefully that will change in a few weeks time. Um, got my second jab, uh, on Saturday, so I can actually travel to an Ember country now, hopefully soon. Um, uh, and really excited to do that and actually get to meet some of these people. But they are the, they are an amazing bunch. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing, and it's so good that you think that without meeting them. So, like, yeah. hopefully, it'll just get better. And I'm going to apologise now for all the recruitment emails you're going to get after putting your email on the podcast. Um, you can just set up a spam filter or something; it'll be fine. Nice one. Well, thank you so much for joining. I'm glad we we finally got to do it. And I say this quite a lot in the show, but I would genuinely love to get you back on um, in six months, maybe twelve months, and just see how the team's progressing, how that part of the business is progressing, just to see what's changed, really. Yeah, uh, it's funny how you look at these things a year later and go, well, God, if only I'd known that a month later that everything was going to change. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, that'd be grand. I'd love to do it. Love to do it. Amazing. Um, well, thank you so much. Thank you.